Well, welcome. Uh, this is the one day I'll wear a blazer. So you've all borne witness to it. Congratulations. Uh, it's so good to see you all. Uh, we'll go on a quick two-week hiatus uh, between now and the new year. So I'll see you next year. Oh, Christmas Eve. Just kidding. I'll save my dad joke for later. You're prepared. Laugh at it better later. Um, here at Midtown, we do our best to uh, follow the historic Christian calendar. Some of you are like, I didn't know there was another type of calendar. Yes, there is. And uh, this calendar um, is also known as the liturgical calendar. It develops out of the first couple hundred years of the church's existence. And it was a way of marking time, and it remains a way of marking time by the story of Jesus. You know, calendars shape us in a particular way. Calendars, we look towards vacations, we look towards days off, we look towards holidays. It shapes our rest, it shapes our anticipation, it shapes what we are looking forward to. And so we, as the people of God, commit ourselves to being shaped in the life of Jesus. At Christmas time, we celebrate that God became man and dwelt among us. At Epiphany, at the first of the year, we celebrate the salvation of God being made available to all people. In Lent, we humble ourselves in prayer and fasting like Jesus in the wilderness. At Easter, we celebrate that our King conquered death. At Pentecost, we celebrate the birth of the church in that we have been sent to love and serve our world. There are more moments in the Christian calendar than just those, but it gives you a sense of how our year can be saturated in the story of Jesus and how year over year our hearts might be shaped in a new way. And right now we find ourselves in the very first season of the Christian calendar called Advent, literally meaning arrival. And as Cassie mentioned, we focus these four Sundays on themes like hope, joy, peace, and today is love. And love is one of the names our God goes by. In 1 John, the author summarizes his time with Jesus, his long career as an apostle, and a lifetime of reading the scriptures with these three words, God is love. But John is not the first to say such a thing. In fact, his name for God is hardly original. In Exodus 34, Moses encounters the God of Israel and wrote, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Or in Psalm 108, David, Israel's most famous king, declares, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations, for your steadfast love is great above the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. So when the apostle John writes, God is love, 
In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. John is hardly being original. He is simply summarizing what he has read in the text and what he has experienced in the flesh. God is love. And even though love takes a center stage in this season, I can't help but wonder if we miss the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth of God's love in Christ. We miss that this is a season that shows off the love of God in part because we often confuse love with sentimentality. But sentimentality is not love, it is a counterfeit. Sentimentality is to experience the internal emotions of love, something like affection or nostalgia, but to do nothing with it. Sentimentality is being more emotionally invested in the fictional characters of Grey's Anatomy or This Is Us than the real characters that you share an apartment with. Sentimentality are the tears at the closing of a powerful documentary on the burden that is food insecurity, but not lifting a finger to do anything about it. Sentimentality is a news report that wakes you up to poverty and injustice in our city that becomes dinner conversation and nothing more. Sentimentality is a sermon that breaks your heart for your neighbor, but choosing to ignore them when you see them at the mailbox. Sentimentality is mistaking God's love for the nativity set unpacked once each year. The love of God demonstrated in Christmas is not tidy. It is not seasonal, nor is it sentimental. The love of God demonstrated at Christmas is better described with words like gritty, audacious, relentless. And the four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each tell of God's Christmas love from a different angle. Emphasizing the love of God not with sanitized cliches or impersonal definitions, but through dysfunctional family trees, through gritty action, through strange stories, and through dirty glory. And so this morning, we're going to spend a little bit of time in each of our Gospels. We're going to spend time reliving and relearning their account of God's love at Christmas. And first up is the gospel of Matthew and the God of love in a dysfunctional family tree. If you would, if you've got your Bible, turn with me to Matthew 1. The first book of the New Testament written by the apostle Matthew for the Jewish people starts by thoroughly arguing that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He argues that the creator God himself has entered into the family tree. This is Matthew's catchy opening to the entirety of the New Testament. Get ready. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. You get the idea. 
It's not quite the brilliant page turner that we expected. It's like, Matthew, run this by a few people, right? <laughs> but despite its boredom for us as 21st century followers, we always skip over the names and the genealogies. This is a brilliant opening in part because it distinguishes the biblical text from the other great religions of our world, for it builds its evidence through a family tree. Like a house built brick by brick, the story of God's love is told name by name through Jesus' family tree. For when our God creates, he doesn't start with a philosophy or a formula. He starts with a name, Adam. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Through these names, Matthew is compiling Jesus' resume, a family that includes prophets, priests, kings, in order to demonstrate that Jesus would be all three. But most genealogies in the ancient Near East were like your LinkedIn page, selectively honest. Yeah, some of you will get that later as you're like looking through your LinkedIn page. You leave off the three-month period at Gap, and they leave off the uncle that started a revolution. But that's not Jesus' genealogy. His is scandalously honest, for it includes those that any proper Jew would be eager to exclude. Women, Gentiles, and sinners. Now, you would think that every family tree would include women, uh, for obvious reasons, but in the patriarchal ancient Near East, women were excluded from the places of honor, but not in Jesus' family tree. The Gentiles were considered the outsiders, the others, the unequal. No good Jew would ever acknowledge the tainted presence of a Gentile in their lineage, except for Jesus. And then there are the sinners, Jesus' family is a who's who of adulterers, liars, thieves, cowards, sex workers, and the coercive. It's God's love told through stories and names like Tamar, Rahab, David, Solomon. There's not another genealogy that has ever sounded like Jesus. For God so loved the world that he enters into the chaos of bloodlines the embarrassment of family ties, and the messiness that is every human community. And the family Jesus came from tells us everything we know, need to know about the family he came for. The family tree of God will now include the embarrassing, the dysfunctional, the scandalous, the barely holding together. The family of God is a mosaic of broken people, a patchworked family tree of addicts, abusers, and cowards, doubters, skeptics, and the unbalanced, alcoholics, workaholics, and shopaholics. It is a dysfunctional family for people like you and me. The Christmas love of God is not families in matching PJs. It is not nostalgia-filled traditions or a frictionless family gathering. The love of God shows up in dysfunctional family trees intent on redemption. 
and intent on writing a new story. And this is where the gospel of Mark picks up with Jesus' love in gritty action. Now, often the gospel of Mark is left out of Christmas for some obvious reasons. There's no manger, there's no wise men, and there's also no baby Jesus. So we can easily make the mistake of assuming that because the birth story of Jesus is absent, that Christmas love is absent too. But that's in part because we have confused sentimentality again with love. Again, sentimentality is to experience some semblance of love, but to do nothing with it. And Mark's biography of Jesus has no time for sentimentality. It has no time for nostalgia. It has no time for looking back, because according to Mark, God's love is action. Mark's nativity jumps straight into the action with Jesus being baptized, tempted in the wilderness, and kicking off his ministry with the announcement, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. God's love for humanity is broadcast through Jesus' every movement. He touches the sick the hurting, the vulnerable. It is Jesus' willingness to reach out and touch that God's love is made palpable. At least eight times in Mark's narrative, Jesus reaches out and touches those any good Jew was not supposed to touch. He touches a sick mother, a leper, a woman plagued by a bleeding, a dying daughter, a deaf man, and the desperate crowds. God's love is exhibited in the actions of Jesus, and it is a love that heals. It is, lo- is a love that sees us for who we really are in our dysfunction, in our disorder and destruction, and it has the power to heal. The love demonstrated by God at Christmas and in Advent is that he is moving toward us with an intention to heal. To look at our deepest wounds, our most painful mistakes, our crippling insecurities, and he desires to heal and to make us whole. Mark does not begin with our king in a crib, but he tells of God's loving action moving towards our deepest brokenness with his healing touch. And then comes Luke with his strange stories of God's love in unlikely places. Now Luke is the quintessential nativity story. Sorry, Matthew, but Luke has it all. You know the story. A young woman Likely, a teenager is visited by a heavenly messenger who tells her of an unlikely set of events. He tells her that she will soon be pregnant with the Son of God. Mary, who paid attention during human biology, said, How will this be? For I am a virgin. The messenger tells her that the Spirit of God will rest upon you, and you will conceive. Fear not. In his biography of Jesus' life, Luke is intentional about including the stories of women. Including those 
crippled by poverty, those who have been marginalized by society, those who are overlooked by the world take a leading role in God's unfolding drama of redemption. So when God chooses Mary as the means by which he will come into the world, this is not an idyllic family affair. A young, engaged-to-be-married woman, pregnant. She bears the weight of assumptions, disapproving looks, whispers, and small-town gossip. The whispers and the murmurs follow her as she just goes about her schedule. The Son of God born in scandal and squalor. A working-class family, a feeding trough for a crib, minimum-wage shepherds, foreign seekers, eventually becoming political refugees. In the most of unlikely of places, a complete reversal is taking place. An inverting of everything we know, the dawning of an upside-down kingdom for the love of God is being displayed through strange stories with the most unlikely of characters. For as Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it, and this is the wonder of all wonders, that God loves the lowly. God is not ashamed of the lowliness of human beings. God marches in, he chooses people as his instruments, and performs his wonders where one would least expect them. God is near to lowliness. He loves the lost, the neglected, the unseemly, the excluded, the weak, and the broken. What kind of love is this that would leave splendor for squalor? A paradise for poverty, a kingdom for a crib. It is the God whose love led him to the dirt. For we'll pick up with our final gospel, the gospel of John, the God of love in dirty glory. As we read in the beginning from John 14, our author writes, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh. This is the hinge by which all of John's gospel turns. John speaks of Jesus as the word that was with God and the word that was God in chapter 1 verse 1. And in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, as the Apostle Paul writes in Colossians 1. As I've walked through the past few decades or so with Jesus, give or take, depending on how you want to talk about Alex as a teenager, believing Jesus is God is actually the easy part. If you're inclined to believe in a higher power, it is not difficult to make the leap to say Jesus is God. The more difficult leap to say is Jesus is human. To believe that God became human is unsettling. I would actually rather believe of him as this alien that kind of showed up in disguise for 33 years. Rather than to think of him of someone like me. Someone who gets a cold Someone who gets splinters in their hands. Someone who got food poisoning when he was 13. 
to think of Jesus as human is unsettling. But John is unmistakable in his gospel. The word, God became flesh, and he dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. What does it mean that the God of heaven became flesh? That he took up residence among us. That he dared to be seen, touched, carried, held, struck, hated. It means that the God of glory made a home in the dirt. And he dwelt among us. This is a story of dirty glory. You see, our God has a habit of getting his hands dirty. In Genesis 1, we're told of our God scooping together dust, scooping together the dirt, and <sighs> breathing life into the very first humans. And in Jesus, our God is up to his old habits. And in John 8, Jesus is confronted by a violent mob eager to put an adulterous woman to death. And Jesus, in the strangest of moves, bends down and he begins to scribble in the dirt. What he writes, what he draws, we have no idea. But with one single line, he disarms the entire mob with one sentence. He who is without sin, throw the first stone. In John 9, Jesus meets a man born blind. And like the story of creation, he bends down and instead of breathing into the dirt, he spits into it. And he begins to rub it in the man's eyes. It's a weird story, but it works. And the man leaves rejoicing in the glory of God come present to him. In John 13, the disciples are enjoying dessert and Jesus rises up from the dinner table. God became flesh, begins to wash his disciples' dirty nasty feet. The God of glory with his hands stained with the dirt from his disciples' feet. And in chapter 19, Jesus is executed and buried in the dirt. But it would not be long before death would be defeated and he would rise again from the dirt. The love of God is not pristine white clothes pressed for Christmas Day. It is a dirt-caked robe of a Middle Eastern carpenter. This is love written in the dirt that our God became flesh and dwelt with us in dirty glory. This is love not that we now have to ascend to him, but that he has descended to us. And then he welcomes us with open arms. Worship team, if you would join me, we'll wrap it up. Advent is this beautiful season of sitting and waiting in the darkness. Advent commemorates the time between the closing of the Old Testament and the opening of the New. If you didn't know, there's roughly this 400-year period between the closing of Malachi and the first words of Jesus. For 400 years, the Israelite people waiting for their Messiah. For 400 years, waiting in oppression, waiting in poverty, waiting in the darkness, hoping for hope, hoping for one who would come. 
Little could they have imagined who would be waiting for them. Advent is a season in the darkness that builds intention until the light of love breaks through. We believe that God, who is eternally self-sufficient, perfect and holy, so loved the world that he enters into the chaos of bloodlines. The embarrassment of family ties and the messiness that is a dysfunctional family tree so that he can make a new family. We believe that the God who's hung the very stars, separated the land from the sea, and shaped the mountains, is lovingly moving towards our pain, all in order to heal. We believe that the God of splendor, abounding in power and might, is demonstrating his love for those with the strangest stories and showing up with the most unlikely of characters. We believe that the God of glory made a home in the dirt, and he dwelt among us. Our God's love is not sentimental. It cannot be described with sanitized cliches or impersonal definitions. For the love of God is told in our dysfunctional family trees. The love of God is demonstrated in his gritty action to overcome whatever barrier just to touch and to heal what is going on in your life and in my life. The love of God is told in strange stories, bizarre situations, and unlikely characters. The love of God is told in dirty glory. This is not the story of a God in a pristine white Christmas jacket, but one who wears the smock of a carpenter who's gotten his hands dirty. It's the God who shaped you and me, who at one point was shaping a table, got splinters in his hands and mud under his nails and dirt in the creases of his hands that his mom told him to scrape out who had mud behind his ears and traveled with a group of smelly disciples. This is a God that showed up in all of his glory and all of his splendor and got his hands dirty for our sake. He is not here to whitewash your worst moments, but to invite you and me to the table of his love. It's a God who welcomes all to the table of his love and his salvation. This is our God, and his name is love. Let's pray. God of love, we confess. We do not understand this profound mystery that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, that he joined a dysfunctional family tree, that he shows up in action, that he shows up in the strangest of stories with the most unlikely of characters, and that he shows up in dirty glory. But we pray this Advent season turned Christmas waiting, that we would be made aware of your love, 
your love that is always waiting, your love that is always welcoming, that your love is more robust than our greatest failures, your love that is more profound than our worst mistakes, your love that is welcoming us in all of our shame, in all of our insecurities, in all of our dirt and grime. You are the God who loves to welcome us to your table. May we learn to love and to be like you. It's in the name of your son. listening to the Midtown Church Weekly Podcast. To find out more or to join a church gathering, check out our website at midtownkc.church.